Rocking the Academy is a podcast that's changing the future of higher education. Your hosts, Mary Churchill and Rupika Rizm, bring you conversations with the very best truth tellers who are formulating a different vision of the university. Do they rock the boat? Yes. But in doing so, they rock the Academy. Rocking the Academy is sponsored by Johns Hopkins University Press, publisher of excellent books on higher education. On this episode of Rocking the Academy, we chat with Chris Newfield, a professor of literature and American studies at the University of California, Santa Barbara. A leading voice in critical university studies, Chris is the author of Ivy and Industry, Business in the Making of the American University, 1880 to 1980, published by Duke University Press in 2003, Unmaking the Public University, the 40-Year Assault on the Middle Class, published by Harvard University Press in 2008, and the recently acclaimed The Great Mistake, How We Wrecked Public Universities and How We Can Fix Them, published by Johns Hopkins University Press in 2016. Chris is also principal investigator on the project Limits of the Numerical, Higher Education in the Age of Metrics, supported by an NEH collaborative research grant. Chris, welcome to Rocking the Academy. I loved your book. I'm really glad to be here. You have become a leading voice in higher ed, particularly around issues of funding for public higher ed. What led you into this work? This is a, this interesting that you ask about how I got into this because my work was always about how institutions affect the collective culture. This is not my first job at UCSB, but I've been here for really a long time. I started at Rice. Rice had no money problems. Came here, very excited about the public mission, the, the much less selected student body, right? So you getting a wider representation of the state, which I really liked. But our budget got cut my first year here, such that I was given a merit increase and then not the money that went with it. It was like $600. And the state of California, you know, which is, was then and now very wealthy, uh, couldn't afford $600 for my assistant professor raise. So I just wanted to know both why, what, how the financing was working such that that was even possible. And then secondly, why nobody seemed to think you could do anything about it. And there's this like, basically just total acceptance and fatalism around institutional politics. So I, I hate it now. I seem to be temperamentally unable to accept it as normal. Anyway, those are, that was like the, yeah. the impulse, at least, behind all this. So what do you think leads to the faculty just accepting the status quo? I think there's, there's a specific cultural history that goes back to the Cold War and a white middle class. We, I said, my parents are like first generation college, you know, I'm second. They just got given everything. You know, World War II, um, you know, if you were white, it was like free college, basically zero interest rate loans, really incredibly expensive, you know, automobile, uh, transport and free freeways to 
you know, drive them on free hospitals, free K through 12, et cetera. Just like all this free stuff when the state was, you know, 85% white. And then as it's gotten taken away, and I think there's a gigantic sort of racism aspect of that that is, oh, well, when it was all these white kids, we had endless money for free college. And now that it's, you know, K through 12 is 75% students of color, suddenly we're broke. There isn't the cultural experience in the U.S. to, to fight. Let's just say that's wrong. So it goes back to this, you know, the argument about Emerson, right, was that submissive individualism is the white middle class's psychological formation to live within this weird kind of quasi-democracy that we have. And I think that that's really disabled um, university activism sort of post-60s in all but the most extreme moments. And then the second thing is that the institution, without necessarily anybody actually intending it, has really divided the faculty into tenure track and non-tenure track. There's now, you know, the new faculty majority is, is contingent. And, you know, they, they are rightly and understandably cynical about whether tenure benefits them, whether, you know, sort of the traditional framework of academic freedom and, you know, the good and professional standards has really done anything. So we have more cynicism about using professional rights and privileges to struggle, you know, as a basis, because it just seems kind of now like a labor aristocracy structure instead. And then I guess the third thing is a lack of material successes. Like if you don't fight, you don't ever win. That's the best way of ensuring you never will win anything. But then if you never win anything, then nobody wants to fight. We're trapped in that kind of vicious cycle. I was reading your book, The Great Mistake, at the same time that I was reading Andrew Hartman's The War for the Soul of America about the culture mm. wars. So it was this very <laughs> interesting juxtaposition between what you were saying about the defunding of public higher ed and timing around the post-1968 culture in the, in the United States. What came across really well in the book was exactly what you say about how, hmm, how interesting that at this moment where we're seeing sort of greater entrance of people of color, particularly Black and Latinx people into higher ed, is also the moment which we're seeing the systematic defunding. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it's, it's really pretty clear. I actually, um, I made a little chart at one point, just trying to find the, show the statistical correlation and it it's it works i think universities could do a better job of advocating for themselves if they flip it around a little bit and say look it's just racist for you not to fund us i have a follow-up question chris it feels like scholar activism for the most part happens off campus i would mm -hmm. say that you're a scholar activist on campus and so i think there are a lot of folks who identify as scholar activists out there but they're not willing or interested in doing that on campus. Yeah. Do you want to speak to that? Yeah, I, I know exactly what you mean. It's been true most of the time I've been working on this. The ethical principle behind it, I think, is helping people that seem to be more in need. You know, so a lot of the work has to do with more disfavored people than our own students who are, are, are in fact, in universities. It's easier. Right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. The less positive thing for me is that it's a bit of an abandonment of what seems to me to be the professional obligation to do Definitely. Uh, some kind of workplace democracy. We tenured faculty as a body have abandoned the field of policymaking and it's less about social justice in the institution. We've kind of outsourced without meaning to social justice to student affairs, 
we've withdrawn from doing the sort of the stronger version of workplace engagement. And the, the weakness of the university institution, I think, is the direct result of that. I wonder if in some ways activism within the side of the university is feminized as service. Hmm. And well, also service is not a highly valued form of academic labor. So the incentive in some ways may not yeah. be fair. Yes, full stop. It has been feminized. That doesn't explain to me, though, why it's perceived as less effective, because women institutionally are indeed more effective. The, the folks that really stay engaged are very often women. So I don't know, that in itself, the feminization of service in some places would lower its status. I don't think that that's so as true in the university as in other places. Do you think I'm wrong about that? I do, actually. Hmm. I do. You know, I see people on Twitter referring to de- women, referring to department chairing as being the department's wife. Yeah, right. You're taking care of the scheduling and you're taking care of the people and you're taking care of their complaints. And Yeah. And I, it's one yeah. of those things, right? Who wants to be department chair? Every time we need a new chair, everybody is putting their finger on their nose saying, not me. How about this formulation instead? The, the feminization of service has wrongly split service from politics, from institutional politics. Yes. So that it does seem more like nurturing. My job is to let my colleagues come in and yell and cry in my office, then go away feeling better, but you know nothing actually changes. Whereas policy and politics is about you know really changing, changing human relations so that the chair is not used in that way but more fundamentally changing, you know, funding, uh, rethinking the department structure, which I don't think is any longer really serving the humanities, rethinking hiring so that, you know, diversity isn't sort of a separate thing, but it's just part of what automatically happens in searches. In my experience, the I've not been the department chair of this, this department. They're so overwhelmed with work that it just feels like questioning authority or just more fundamentally trying to rewrite some fundamental operating right, right, codes right. isn't part of the job. They just never have time for it. I think a lot of the changes you just mentioned that are political or more policy are longer term too. And I think some of the terms of service of the chair role, and you know that it's going to rotate, getting involved in those kind of larger scale overhauls, it's, you can't be done in a year, right? So it may just seem insurmountable. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, you're, you're really making me think about this though, about the, the role of gender. And I, cause I'm still, I'm very reluctant to think of gendering as having depoliticized, like, I, like I was saying at the start, the women I know are at least engaged, as engaged, if not more so, in high ideals for the university and formulating yeah. those and then trying yeah. to enact yeah. them. Yeah. There's a routinization of administrative work that authorizes defeatism and localism, extreme localism around policy discussions. So, for example, departments are really, are like they look to nurturing work that they already know how to do rather than confrontational work that will lead them into possibly risky conversations with deans that may shift the dean's positive feeling about a particular department towards something like, oh, this department is becoming one of my problems. You know, going back to the the sort of white middle-class default culture of academia, which can also suck, you know, people of color into it and just suck anybody into it. It's very powerful. 
we don't want to engage in, in that kind of conflict. We're going to lose. We're going to feel bad. So let's focus on the things that we can actually do. Oh, these all get dark. <laughs> <laughs> we knew Chris was not going to be uplifting. We knew this. We know what no. he writes. <laughs> I'm a total optimist about the future of higher learning. So building off of that, <laughs> especially because it's an election cycle, we've been seeing a number of interesting proposals on the cost of higher ed, like the debt consolation and free college. What are your thoughts on what needs to happen in the U.S. to, to rectify some of the issues around the higher ed funding that you identify in your book? Okay, well, so I, I think the financial aid system, the student financial aid system that we have is bigoted against new entrants, uh, particularly students of color, first generation, low income, because it, it sets up a completely different financial outcome for college for people who have to borrow compared to people who don't have to borrow. So you, you're, you're creating a class, a racialized class system in which a whole bunch of people get to have liberatory college experiences and other people see college as a burden that they're going to have to pay for for the foreseeable rest of their lives. And you know, people are paying, you know, they're 50, 60 years old, there are re retired people are still paying on student loans. So it's, it's deeply unjust, and we have not focused on that aspect of it enough as a society, that it's just, it's split college in, in ways that are utterly tied to one's family's financial circumstances. Nobody thinks that's fair, really, but nobody, nobody is really willing to break it up fundamentally. So I think the goal, the policy goal has to be debt-free college for all. 100% of the people who go to get an associate's degree or a bachelor's degree need to graduate debt-free. The debt just has to be forgiven and it ha or it has to be bought out in the first place. Okay, so that I think is the, uh, that's the primary policy goal. The only way that I know of to get to that goal is with tuition free. So it's not like zero tuition is in itself this massive social good, although I, you know, it has, it definitely changes how people feel about applying to college and matriculating. But it's the means to the end, the other end, which is the primary thing, which is that everybody starts their lives, their bachelor's degree, without a debt burden that has been incurred by that thing. All the Democrats should come out in favor of that. And, you know, make the Republicans explain why it's good for half, 60% of the student population to have a completely different financial outcome from college than the, the privileged 20 to 40%. You know, make the Republicans defend a, a quasi-caste-like system, right, rather than, you know, Democrats always saying, oh, well, you know, it's just, we, we agree that it's very expensive. So, I mean, that's, for me, it's like an elementary social justice issue. And then the second thing is, oh, can we afford this? The answer is absolutely yes. So there's some numbers in The Great Mistake that show that, you know, most of it can be covered just by refunctioning the ridiculously inefficient student debt system that we have. And it would have massive social benefit as well as an individual benefit of eliminating the injustice that now goes along with higher ed. You have been listening to Rocking the Academy. 
Rocking the Academy is sponsored by Johns Hopkins University Press, publisher of The Fifth Wave, The Evolution of American Higher Education by Michael M. Crow and William B. DeBars, available where books are sold.